the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Good morning. Turn with me to the book of Jonah. At the very end of chapter 1, we'll pick up in verse 17, and we'll end at Jonah chapter 2, verse 10. So we're going to cover a bit this morning. So that's Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, was where we will begin. Chapter 2, verse 10 is where we will end, Lord willing, by the end of today. Well, swallowed by a great fish. You cannot be serious that you would believe such a thing that a man would be swallowed whole by a fish only to be spit out later. What is the science behind that? Well, I have no idea. You can ask Sarah or Ansley later, and they'll probably tell you the same thing, because I don't know that there's much of a scientific explanation for being swallowed by a fish. And to be quite honest, the text doesn't give us that. It's one verse. Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, and and there's not a lot there, but do I believe that Jonah was actually swallowed up by a fish? I do. I believe Jonah was swallowed up by a fish, and he was there for three days and three nights. And if you ask me why I believe that, I would take you to Matthew chapter 12, verses 40 through 41, to read this. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, these are the words of Jesus, So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Well, why can I believe that someone will be swallowed by a fish? Because I believe that somebody was very literally raised from the dead after being very literally dead for three days. If I can buy into that, The fish thing isn't that hard. See, that's the reality of our faith. Miraculous, unexplained things happen all throughout the Bible. And you can say, do you have to believe this part or that part of the Bible? And I know this. You have to believe that Jesus rose bodily from the dead to be a Christian. You have to believe that. If Christ is not raised, we of all pity, people are most to be pitied. No resurrection, no Christianity. I guess I would just say, if you're there, then God can do things that are totally miraculous and amazing. And I don't know if studying the, you know, gestation or the the, the digestive system, digestive system of a fish is really the necessary thing. We can just kind of say it happened because God can do miraculous and amazing things. And that's what I want us to see this morning. And so, yes, I want to see that Jonah was, in fact, quite literally swallowed by this great fish. But that's not all that Jonah is really swallowed by. See, in a metaphorical way and not a literal kind of way, I want us to see that Jonah was swallowed by the grace of God. 
that as Jonah is cast into the sea by the sailors while on this boat that is being overwhelmed by a storm that the Lord has hurled upon the sea miraculously and he has been found out by this by a lot that is cast that God miraculously makes sure falls to Jonah. The Jonah is sinking down and he is drowning in the sea. And this fish, as strange as it is, is his salvation. The swallowing up by this fish is how Jonah makes it out of the sea alive. So Jonah is in fact swallowed up, not only by this fish, but by the very grace of God. A man who does not deserve to be saved, he deserves to be sunk down to the bottom of the sea, but he's not. His life is preserved in this miraculous, albeit strange way. And while in the belly of this fish, we find this prayer. This prayer that is given to us. It comes to us in the form of a psalm or a poem. And it is Jonah's recounting of these events of being sinking down, swallowed up, and what it looks like to be changed by the grace of God in our lives. And so as we look at Jonah's prayer, what we want to see is one truth and then two implications of that truth. The one truth is this, is that God hears our prayers and the two implications that we'll see come out of that truth is that we can then pray honestly and pray with hope. As we walk through Jonah chapter two, this next 10 verses, that's what I want us to see is that God hears your prayers and because God does in fact hear you, you can pray honestly and you can pray with hope hope. Now, something like God hears your prayers is something that we can kind of take for granted. You can think, why in the world did I show up this morning? I knew that already. But it's something that I think a lot of us, we, we, in our regular prayer life, we don't really realize what's going on, that we pray and we talk to the living God. And in fact, I think prayer is something that is so uh, non-offensive in that kind of way, because we don't always realize what we're doing, that the world has its own kind of versions of prayer, if you will. I think prayer oftentimes gets looked at as a more primitive, a less evolved form of certain types of meditation, right? If, if we can just kind of take a moment and kind of think, we can become more aware of who we are and how the world around us is impacting us. We'll learn to kind of accept the harsh realities of life and be able to move on. And this idea that, that you know, prayer, it, it's just something people used to do back before we knew better, But it's still this helpful kind of thing, this meditative process that we can have that sometimes looks like a lot of ancient Near Eastern religions. And we can look at this thing and what actually happens is that kind of praying or meditation or whatever you want to call it really just has you looking deeper and deeper inward and into yourself. And that's where the difference really lies. What the world tells us is, you know, just kind of like, it's fine. Like, hey, if you want to pray for me, that's cool. You want to talk to your imaginary friend about life's problems, that's fine. But what we are saying is so different. What's unique about Christian prayer is that we don't just believe we're taking a moment to meditate, to look deeper inside. We actually think we're looking outside. We're crying out. We believe that God hears us. 
That's fundamentally different than anything you're going to find out in the world. When you pray, there is somebody else on the other line. He hears you. Jonah isn't just taking a moment to reflect on his inner being. Jonah, chapter 2, verse 1, it says this, Jonah then prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Jonah prays. And he does so knowing that God hears him, that his prayers are being answered, that he's not just talking to himself in the belly of a fish, but he's talking to the very living God who changes us. He is crying out and he's saying, I'm calling out to the Lord in the middle of my distress. And he answered me out of the belly of Sheol, or another way to maybe say that would be like the womb of death. Sheol was the place that they believed that the dead would go and be held until the day of judgment. It was to die to go to this place. And to be in the belly of this place is on the cusp of death itself, the very womb. Jonah, I believe, is sinking down into the heart of the sea. And he knows, I'm going to die unless something else happens. Unless something comes to save me, I'm done for. And so he cries out to the Lord out of his distress. And when he is swallowed up into the belly of this great fish, he knows that the Lord has answered him. The Lord has saved him from death. He has heard his voice. Dear Christian, it is so important that when you are praying in the middle of your distress, in life's difficulties, in your hurts, in your pains, that you need to know you're not just pushing further in, you are pushing further out. You're praying to a God who listens to you and a God who hears you. This is a personally life-altering and important realization that I had. You see, I just moved to the city of Columbus, and we were helping plant another church in Bexley. I was working nights and going to seminary, and so I would spend a lot of time in the Bexley Library studying. And I was there, and I got a phone call from my dad, and so I stepped out of the library for a moment, and I took this phone call. And in the phone call, I learned that yet again, my mom had been diagnosed with cancer. Now, I've had this conversation and this kind of phone call several times in my life. My mom had fought cancer since I was 14 years old and in the eighth grade. This was now 10 years later as I'm sitting in the city of Columbus, or I guess eight years later. And I have to deal with all this reality again. And I know what that means. I know that it means more chemotherapy. I know that it means more radiation. I know that it means hair loss and fatigue and nausea and pain and all these things that are coming back just again and again and again. And I took that phone call with my dad and he told me that reality and I walked into that Bexley library and I don't know how I ended up here. I don't know if I was studying Psalm 4 at the time for seminary. I can't, I can't remember. I don't know if it was just my Bible reading plan. I have no idea. But somehow I ended up in Psalm chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, and it says this, Answer me when I call, O God. O God of my righteousness, you have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame and how long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Selah. And then verse three, and this is the verse that hit me. 
but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. In the middle of a public library, as a 22-year-old man, I started crying. (laughs) But they weren't tears of sadness. Strange as it might be, they were tears of relief And I was overwhelmed by the truth that in that moment I was crying out to God in my distress, in my pain, in my difficulty. And I was overwhelmed by the reality of the last half of verse three that the Lord hears when I call to him. You're not just pressing deeper in when you pray, you're pressing out. When you pray in your distress, in your pain, and in your sorrow, you need to know, know it in the depth of your heart, that God listens to you. He hears your prayers. Prayer is not a meditative exercise that pushes you further in. It is a conversation with the living God that enables us to look and cry out, out to a God that hears us, who's outside of us. God hears you when you pray. And because God hears you when you pray, you can and ought to be honest in your prayers. We need to pray honestly. Jonah is suffering in this moment. He is falling down into the sea as he's kind of recounting this for us in the next four verses here. He is authentically suffering See, what I want to point out here is the reality that Jonah is recounting his trouble in these next couple verses, but he is doing it in an honest way, but in an honest way that not only sees his pain and expresses that honestly, which he does, but also sees the reality of his circumstances in a Godward lens. Jonah does not put himself at the center of his suffering. Jonah puts God at the center of his suffering. When Jonah is praying honestly, he is also praying truthfully. Truthfully in his pain and in his difficulty, but truthfully in the, in the knowledge of the character and the role of God in this situation. So when Jonah prays in verse 3, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, all your waves and your billows passed over me. Yes, he is being honest about the reality of his situation. He is dying. He's overwhelmed by the sea. Its flood has surrounded him. His distress is completely immersive. But he doesn't say, because those stinking sailors threw me off the boat. And he doesn't say, because I send my way into this situation. If I just wouldn't have ran to you, or ran away from you, then I wouldn't be here. No, Jonah recognizes that while it is true that he has sinned, and that is why he is here, he has run away from the presence of God, and it is true that the sailors, in fear for their own lives, took another human being and chucked him into the sea, that is true. Jonah realizes that God, in his sovereignty, in a way that only God can do, is working with his own decisions, working with the decisions of these sailors, and yet having his way in this situation. Who has cast him into the deep? Who has placed him here? Jonah says, for you have cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. Pastor Andrew McMurray, a South African pastor, 
in the middle of some personal suffering he was going through. Someone came to him and he was unable to attend to them because he was in so much pain from a, uh, some back trouble that he was having. He was bedridden and someone came to him and said, hey, the, this person wants to talk to you and he says, this is what I'm learning right now. So feel free to, to I'm gonna tell you what I'm learning and pass it on to them and I hope it's of a help to them. And he says this, the quote will be up on the screen. He says, in times of trouble, say first, he, talking about God, brought me here. It is by his will, I'm in this present straight place, and in that, I will rest. Next, he will keep me here in his love and give me grace in this trial to behave as his child. Then say, he will make the trial a blessing, teaching me lessons he intends me to learn and working in me that grace he means to bestow. And last say, in his good time, he can bring me out again. How and when he knows. God is sovereign and in control of our troubles. That has been the greatest and most comforting truth to me in all of my trials and troubles, that they always have a purpose. There is never a situation in my pain that I got there by accident. God has never dropped the ball on me, and he has never done that on you. You are where you are because God in his love and in his care for you has you there, and he loves you too much to give you anything else. Jonah is where Jonah is because God, and the only way that God can know, knows that what this guy needs to change is to be thrown into the sea and swallowed by a big fish. And only God can know something like that. Even when we, like Jonah, get ourselves into trouble through our own sin, we want to see that God is not the author of sin, that though that is our responsibility and we are responsible for God for that, but nothing happens apart from his hand of providence. God works in a mysterious way, but it is such good news to know that if you have found yourself in distress, no matter how you got there, God has placed you there. He has cast you into the heart of that sea. And that means that there's a plan. There's a plan for your good and his glory. Looking to verse four, Jonah continues on and he says, then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look upon your temple, or, or excuse me, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. And I think this is so ironic, but it's great. Jonah, for the first chapter, has been running away from the presence of the Lord. It starts off, God says, Jonah, go to Nineveh, cry out against it. Jonah says, okay, I'll go to Tarshish, which is the opposite direction. And he's running away from the presence of the Lord. And he's trying to get away from God, and he knows he can't get away from God. But he's he's saying, I'm not going to serve you. I'm not going to do what I want. I'm going to do what I want to do instead. And he heads in the opposite direction. But now we get to the place where, at least experientially, it seems like Jonah is finally feeling like he's not in the presence of God. I am driven away from your sight. And the moment that that happens, Jonah says, uh, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. See, to the ancient Israelite, the temple is the dwelling place of God. It's where God is. So you have this guy who for a chapter and a half has been running in the way in the opposite direction. He wants to get away from the presence of the Lord. But then he finds himself in distress and his cry is, I want to be in your presence. I'm in pain and this is really hard. Yet I need to look to the Lord. 
He is interpreting his circumstances honestly, but with a Godward lens. This is like a cry of repentance for Jonah. I'm driven away from your sight. I'm trying to get away from your presence, yet bring me back. I shall look again upon your holy temple, the dwelling place of God. That's where he wants to look and he wants to see. And he continues on in verse five. He says, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds wrapped around my head. Oh, just imagine that. I I don't know if I'm like mildly claustrophobic or whatever, but that just sounds horrible. Being underwater and then having weeds wrapped around your head. He can't get out. He can't see. He He can't breathe. He's underwater. He says, at the root of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. This is probably another reference to Sheol. It's this belief that once you're dead, it is over. He's saying, I am heading down to the heart of the mountain, meaning, meaning he's heading down. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And when, this, when I'm dead, it's over. No more chances. I'm barred out forever. But that's not what he says. See, when he interprets his circumstances, he interprets his pain, he says this, the end of verse six, yet you brought my life from the pit, from that place of death. Oh Lord, my God. He looks to his situation and he sees that God is his deliverer, that his pain is real, but he also looks hopefully and honestly that God is gonna deliver him And he drives it home in verse seven when he says, and when my life was fainting away, he said, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. When all seemed lost, I remembered where my hope comes from. And I prayed and you heard my prayer. Where you dwell, God, you can hear me. This is the reality of Jonah. He is praying honestly, honest about his own pain, but honest about the nature, role, and character of God. There are three things that I want us to take away from this about his honesty. Number one, he is honest about God's providence. He's honest about God's providence. Who does he blame for casting him into the sea? There is no blame. He says, God, you have put me here for you cast me into the sea. He acknowledges that what Andrew McMurray would say, first, he brought me here. It is by his will I'm in this present strait in that I will rest. See, if you are here and it is God's will, then you know it is God's plan and God has promised that he's gonna work good for you, that he might work in your life in such a way that you look more like Jesus and for your glory. Number two, he is honest about his experience. So when we say this and we talk about difficulties in life, what we're not saying is pull your punches on your pain. What we're not saying is that pain isn't legitimate or doesn't matter. Just suck it up. You know, big girls don't cry. Real men don't shed tears. We don't say that. We weep and we gnash our teeth and we're upset and we can be in real and genuine pain. He's crying out and talking about how the waves, the bill, they pass over him. They surround him. His, your billows passed over me. He is real and authentic about his suffering. But that's not enough. He's not just honest about pain. He is finally also honest about God's deliverance. He knows who is going to rescue him. 
and where his salvation comes from. It comes from the Lord. When we are in trouble, we are natural interpreters. We interpret everything around us. It's the way God has made us. And you will either interpret the world and your circumstances and your pain through your own sinful lens, or you will allow the word of God to mold your mind and shape you and change you so that you might interpret difficult circumstances through God's eyes and not your own. And what God says is, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Cry out to me in your distress and I will deliver you. That's God's way. And because that is true and we can be honest about that reality, that God is in charge and in control and he's providential, that our pain is real, that God has delivered us, we can be hopeful because he will deliver us. We can pray with hope. Looking at verse eight, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. This is actually a really hard verse to interpret because it's actually a really hard verse to translate. There are, if you look at good Bible translations, they'll differ a little bit. Here's the good news. Where they land kind of puts us in the same place no matter what. But, but I, I want to share both ways to look at it because I want you to know that even people who really, really love God and take a lot of time to study these things, sometimes the Bible is, is hard. And we can acknowledge that. So it could either be translated because of just the way the, the verbs work, because it's, it's only five words in Hebrews. It's not very many words to go off of. So it, it all comes down to like, who is uh, forsaking the steadfast love? Because that's all like one verb together. And, and so what happens is either it can be translated basically to say that those who pay regard to vain idols, they will no longer be loyal to those idols. So like when distress comes, if you're worshiping a false god, you're going to ditch the false god because the false god's going to fail you, right? So that's one way you could could translate this verse, that the, that the loyalty, the steadfast love is, is their steadfast love to their fake idol, and they're going to forfeit and forsake that. Or the other way would be to look and see that, because that verb is hesed, which is often translated as God's covenantal love with his people. It's, it's, what he, it's his steadfast love with, with us. What it's saying is, if we pay regard to vain idols, if we're an idol worshiper, we worship a false god, we then forsake the only true hope we could ever have, that true hope being in the steadfast covenantal love of God. To turn away from the one true God and worship false gods will land you in a place where you will not have hope anymore because you're not hoping in the one true God. That's how our ESV uh, that we're using today, that's, that's how they translate that. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. It's the way that I would see it personally, but I also, you know, got out of Hebrew too because it was really hard. So <laughs> let's tell you that. The point that we need to take away from this is no matter where you land on that, you're, if you pay regard to vain idols, you're hopeless. So whether that's because you have to ditch your false idols, and, and there's some good contextual reasons for that, right? We just had sailors do that. They were worshiping their false gods, and those sailors were like, no one's listening to us. We're still trapped on this boat. We're going to die. So then when they listened to Yahweh, when they listened to the one true God, 
the sea calm down for them. And so it might just be a throwback to that. Or if it's the other one, it's just the realization that Jonah is saying, I've been living my own way, paying regard to a vain idol, even if it's just himself. Instead of obeying God and doing what he's supposed to do, what he's been called to do, he's doing what he wants to do. And he's saying, if I keep living this way, I am hopeless. We will forsake your hope of steadfast love. At the end of the day, here's the reality. Either way, land you hopeless. So here's my question for you and for me right now, is do you hurt? Are you sinking down? And do you feel hopeless? Now, now I want to be clear. I'm not asking you, is life hard? I know the answer to that. Life is hard. Life is really hard. I'm not asking you if you're going through authentic suffering. I know the room. It's been a week here. Your pain is real. What I'm asking you is, do you have hope? Do you have hope even in the midst of pain? In real, real pain, do you still hope and believe that God will deliver you? And the answer is no. The answer is, I just feel hopeless that I have to ask you a harder question. But it's a question that I want to ask you in love. Is possibly, have you placed your hope in vain idols? Is that overwhelming sense of hopelessness there? Because right now in your functional theology, which we talked about last week, the way that you're living, you might say with your mouth, I believe God will deliver me. But right now, do you really believe it? And do you live like you believe that? And you find yourself, I'm just, I have no hope. I have to ask you that hard question. Is it because Jonah 2, 8 is true? That those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. When you are in trouble, where do you run? Do you run to busyness, work? And that's working as some kind of functional idol. I'll just distract myself and work, 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 work. Entertainment, I'll just numb it all away. I'll watch 7,000 episodes of something on Netflix. I'll scroll social media over and over. I'll do whatever it is. I'm just, I just need to be entertained, distracted. Do you run to sleep like Jonah did in chapter one? You just got to shut out the rest of the world. Is it isolation? I just want to be alone and kind of cocoon up and it's kind of practice more of that inward sensation. It's not an outward praying to God, but an inward recounting of trouble. Do you run to substance abuse? to try to numb away the pain? What about the world of fantasy? You spend more time daydreaming about what life could be life like instead of living life in the real world? Just pour yourself into your kids and what they're doing and just that way I don't have to deal with any of the difficulties of life or career or maybe that future goal or even good things like your spouse. And those things become these little functional idols in our lives. And when pain and distress strike, what we will find is they won't be good enough. Now, I'm not saying if you believe in God that all your pain will just go away. Authentic suffering is real. What I'm saying is if God is the apex of our own desires, meaning he is all and in all, He is where we have set our hope and it's on nothing else. 
I am saying that no matter your circumstances, as painful as they might be, you will not forsake hope. Hope in the steadfast love of God. That grace has brought you safe thus far and grace will bring you home. I guess the real question is, are you stuck in Jonah chapter one? See, if you're with Jonah in Jonah chapter one, it's as if he as he's in total escape mode. He's running away from God. He's doing what he wants to do. He finally gets to the point, even when he like, doesn't want the other sailors to go down. I, I don't know. He just, he's not really crying out to the Lord. He's saying, I don't know, just chuck me overboard. I'm giving up. Throw me overboard. I have no idea what he thinks is gonna happen. My money is that he's not thinking, I bet a giant fish is gonna come swallow me. That was probably a shocker for Jonah. But are you stuck there where you're just saying, I just wanna give up, I'm done, I just, ah, I can't deal with this anymore, are you in escape mode? You're running to those distractions, running to those other things. Metaphorically, you're just saying, man, just throw me overboard. Or, can you see that today we're no longer in Jonah chapter one? But dear friend and brother and sister, we're in Jonah chapter two. And in Jonah chapter two, if you want to walk this path with him, you'll find yourself in verse nine and you can say, but I, even in the midst of pain, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord I don't know what your great fish is, but you probably won't see it coming. But I want to tell you that salvation belongs to the Lord. There is hope. There's hope that surpasses all understanding because this life is not the end. There is hope and you can face trial and difficulty because of your pain. You can cry out with the psalmist in Psalm 42, 11. Why are you downcast? Oh, my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You don't need to fake it till you make it. You can suffer authentically and biblically, which means you can weep and you can mourn. In fact, you can do that with other people. You can weep with those who weep. We can call out the pain of this world and say that it does, in fact, hurt. But we can do that with an eye toward our hope that is in Christ alone. God will use your suffering and your pain to refine you and change you and make him more like yourself. Even if your circumstances never get better. The reality is, as I told you about my mom's situation, circumstantially, her situation was horrible. My mom passed away in 2015. She fought cancer for a long, long time. It never got better, it only got worse. If our hope is in the vain idol of medicine, she did all the things that she could, and we would do that again, 
my family and my mom would have been left hopeless. But I watched my parents suffer authentically, but suffer with hope. Hope in the living God. I watched them worship Christ all the way through. I watched my dad say things like, Tammy, God has called us to live for him, but he has also called us to die for him. And now this is the time. And as you die of cancer, we will die. You will die to the glory of God. And she did. I'm not saying God is going to change your circumstance when I say that he will deliver you. What I'm saying is that you will have hope no matter what to face no matter what comes. No matter what comes, you can glorify the Lord in the way that you live. But only if you don't pay regard to vain idols and turn from sin and run to the Lord who is your salvation and say with Jonah, salvation belongs to the Lord. See, when this happens, Jonah is changed. And what we see in verse 10 is that God changes Jonah and then he sets him back to his task that he's called him to do. He said, and the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. It's not pretty. Sovereign Lord of the universe has hurled a storm upon the sea, has made the lot fall to this man so that he can't hide from his sin. He has appointed a great fish to come and swallow him up, and now he has spoken to that fish and made it vomit Jonah up where, not just anywhere, but upon the dry land so that Jonah can go and preach to Nineveh. I sang a hymn to Simon this morning because he woke up really early. He's my youngest son. And I was doing my own quiet time. And we sing, turn your eye upon Jesus. And that second verse, the second half, it's, oh, soul, are you weird and troubled? The whole song is about pain and suffering, but turn your eyes upon Jesus. And at the second verse, it says, but then go to a world that is dying. And basically, because his salvation is to tell. And that's what we get to do. When we authentically suffer and walk with the Lord in our pain, he changes us. He makes us more like him and he delivers us. And then we get to go and tell others about this God and his salvation because it is unique and prayer has not evolved and is not more refined but our world that continues to look deeper and deeper inward is going to run to vain idols and they will be forsaken. But we have good news that we don't cry in, we cry out. Out to the God who hears, who hears us when we're honest and authentic about our pain and our suffering, but hears us and wants us to see things for the way they truly are, that he is in control and he is the deliverer. And that will give us a tremendous amount of hope. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. We thank you that we can experience trouble in a way that is unique and different from this world. We thank you and we praise you that you are sovereign. You are the king 
Nothing happens in this world that catches you off guard or surprises you. And that means you use pain and suffering. And that means that prayer is more powerful because we don't just pray to the air and we certainly don't pray to a weak God who can do nothing about our circumstances. We pray to the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. We pray to the one who owns salvation. Whose steadfast love will never fail. So Lord, we run to you and help us hope in you and you alone. Lord, for all who are suffering and in pain, I pray they are comforted by these truths and comforted by the people of God, that they would allow themselves to be surrounded, that we might weep with them in their time of weeping, and that they might look to others who may be rejoicing and rejoice in those things as well. Father, comfort us and change us. And as your word tells us, with the same comfort that we are comforted with, we might be used to comfort others also. So Lord, help us have a God-centered view of our suffering and our difficulty that pushes our cries out, but also pushes our focus and our attention out in the ways that we can not only love God, but love neighbor. And I ask this in your name. Amen.